Please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. That's where we'll be this morning in verses 18 through 28. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible before you. We would love for you to use it this morning. You're welcome to even take it if you need it. We are continuing on in our series in the book of Genesis. And as we start in this morning, I want you to consider the following scenario. You're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're walking through a spiritually rich time. You're seeing God. You're seeing evidence of His grace. You're seeing evidence of His hand at work guiding and leading you, and it might even seem as if you're walking with Him step for step. Everything in Christ is just coming natural. You're humming along spiritually. And then out of nowhere, you find yourself face first, neck deep in sin. You never saw it coming. It's kind of like it stalked you, snuck up on you, and took you down. Have you ever had a season like that? This morning, as we return to the life of Noah to finish his story, that's very nearly the perspective that we're going to see, and it's an, an important message. It's an important message we'll find here in Genesis chapter 9, but to get there, we got to start a little earlier. Let me give us a couple of other perspectives of Noah. We'll start back in Genesis 6-8. Listen to what it says about Noah. It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah had favor with God. This tells us there's something distinct about Noah. This tells him that there's something about him that's set apart from the culture around him. Now, if you know this story, you recognize the whole boat, you recognize the flood, you get it all. But God saw something in Noah. That's what starts this story. And then in the next verse, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And as you read that, you see his righteousness, you see his blamelessness, and what begins to subtly happen as you read that, you start to see you getting peeled from Noah, right? Man, Noah must have been awesome. Noah must have been this really incredible man. Hebrews 11, by the way, testifies of his faith. And because of his set-apartness, because of his faith, because of his obedience, he also had a great calling. You'll remember Scott walked us through this a couple weeks back. Noah called to build an ark. I think we all know the story. Noah was called to do something very countercultural, and it wasn't a one-day obedience. Researchers suggest it could have taken somewhere between 40 to 80 years to build a nearly 450-foot ark. And that's an extraordinarily long walk in obedience building an ark on dry land. Then if you remember the story, the rains came, the water rises, and suddenly all you could see is water. Till finally a dove comes back with an olive branch, the water disappears, and by chapter 8, Noah and his family are getting off the ark. And in chapter 8, verse 20, Noah builds an altar, and he and his family worship the Lord, for God has delivered them, he's saved them. And the text tells us that God was pleased with Noah's sacrifice. So at the beginning of chapter 9, we've been given a single picture of Noah as one who stands out, as one who is blameless, as one who walks with God, and it continues on, right? Because right at the beginning, you see God making an eternal covenant with Noah. 
promising to never flood the earth again, promising and offering a rainbow as a covenantal sign that he would be forever faithful. And if we're not careful, we start focusing on Noah. And we start to think Noah is the prototype here. Noah is the faithful one, that Noah's the guy we should follow. You see this, God speaks to you, God reveals his plan to you, he calls you to build an ark, so you do it. God is faithful, he floods the earth, he protects you, he's faithful. You get off the boat, he promises his faithfulness. And we're tempted to start to believe that this Noah character is pretty awesome. That he's the hero of the story, and if we're not careful, we could quickly make the application of our reading of this text to be like Noah. I need to be like Noah. Noah, that's, that's the guy I'm supposed to live like. That's the guy I'm supposed to emulate. And yet you would be wrong. You would have missed the reality of his story because one of the things that sets you up for, which we'll see over and over again in the book of Genesis, is a contrast that gets set up between the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of men. That God is gracious. That God is faithful and men are prone to wander. That's why we have this story. That's why it shows up here. I read several commentaries. People are like, I don't understand why this is here. It kind of dumbs down the story of Noah. You have these great expectations of him. And then this? Exactly. Let's enter into Noah's story. Chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Moses is headed towards giving us a genealogy, recognizing, of course, Moses writing the book of Genesis. And what he's starting to do here is he's recording the sons of Noah, and he's starting to set the table for us to see that they're going to fill the earth in compliance with what God called them to do. Part of the cultural mandate was to fill the earth. So they're starting to get ready to spread out. They're obeying God. And as we move to verse 20, theologian Gordon Winham in his commentary on Genesis gives us good words to help us feel some tension right here. This is what he writes. The world seems all set for a new start. The slate has been wiped clean, and we hope that the mistakes of the antediluvians will not be repeated. By the way, an antediluvian is one who existed before the flood. That's all that word means. Why we can't pick an easier word, I don't know. Pre-floodites works for me. But no sooner is the blessing pronounced and the eternal covenant confirmed than men lap, man lapses Again, you see a return to sin, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now let's take this text slowly. Noah was a man of the soil. Now, there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, he's probably in obedience to the Lord, looking to subdue the earth, looking to fulfill what God has called him to do. He plants a vineyard. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. He's cultivating what God has given him. He's obeying God. Let's take another step. Noah drank of the wine. 
Now, possibly this is more controversial depending on where you come from, but biblically considered, drinking wine is not a sin. It's permissible in the Old Testament and the New Testament with one strong limitation. Do not get drunk. This is not going to become a sermon on alcohol. But you have to understand that permissibility in the Bible, you're allowed to drink alcohol but not get drunk. So what you see is that Noah enters into the allowable and wanders past the limit of permissibility. He goes into the level of excess, into the realm of sin. That's the tension with alcohol. Another sermon, another day. But we should be mindful of what Paul writes to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 5. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Another version says it is wild living. The King James calls it living in excess. The Christian standard calls it entering into a reckless life. You get the idea. It's a movement past the permissible, past the in control into a life that is out of control. And that's what you see in Noah in this story. He drinks wine, gets drunk, and ends up naked in his tent. Now we can hone in on any single part of that and again miss the point because what we're supposed to cue in on rather than just his drunkenness is the picture that Noah is not faithful. It's the picture that Noah is falling flat on his face in sin. That he too is culpable of sin. Even a man who has walked with God, even a man who has endured tremendous obedience, even a man who's made a covenant with the Lord God, we're supposed to see that he's no different than Adam and Eve who chose sin. He's no different than you or me. He is still fallen. He's still incomplete. He's still insufficient. That what's going on in this case is that sin, lowercase, A sin lowercase is always tells us of the acts that we commit that break God's law. Sin lowercase is just a symptom of the greater disease. That sin uppercase, which refers to us having a a sin nature that comes along being a, a child of Adam, that we will choose sin that we're separated from God. The sin lowercase is a symptom of a disease that we all suffer from. And we see it in Noah. Further, if we continue on the story, we'll see that sin, lowercase, as a symptom, doesn't always come along as a single issue. In fact, there are always ramifications, there are implications, there's a a fallout to sin. Watch in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. See, the story starts with revealing Noah's sin, but it doesn't end there. Because what we're going to see now is how Noah's sons deal with sin and how sin often leads to sin. So first we see Noah's son, Ham. The text tells us that he sees the nakedness of his father and tells his brothers. And on face value, that doesn't seem to mean much in our culture. But there are two significant things we need to lean into culturally, things we need to understand that will help this text unfold for us. The first of which I'll allow Alan Ross to to speak to us from his commentary on Genesis. This is what Dr. Ross says. It's difficult for someone living in the modern world to understand the modesty and discretion of privacy called for in an ancient morality. He's taking you back 
5,000 years to appreciate that our culture is different than theirs. Nakedness in the Old Testament was from the beginning a thing of shame for fallen man, pointing you back to Genesis 3. The state of nakedness was both undignified and vulnerable. To see someone uncovered was to bring dishonor and to gain advantage for potential exploitation. Dr. Ross is pointing to the fact that to perceive someone else's nakedness is an incredibly shameful thing. And so what you're supposed to kind of lean into this is in the Old Testament to see someone's nakedness is to take their dignity. It's to defile their privacy. And so Ham happens to come upon his father. Could have been an accident. You don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But it brings shame upon his father. So how's he going to handle it? What's he going to do? What we see is that Ham makes it worse. For he could have chosen to restore his father. He could have chosen to protect his father's dignity. But instead he chooses to increase his father's shame by bringing it to his brothers. He runs out, hey guys, guys, dad's naked. And we can giggle about that, but that's a shameful thing in their culture. Ham's way of dealing with his father's sin was to mock him. To bring shame upon him. And so what we see is that Noah's sin is met with Ham's sin. And so in contrast, we see Shem and Japheth, and we see their response. And you start to see a model of the beginnings of grace and restoration. Consider verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and they walked backwards, covering the nakedness of their father. They created a scenario whereby they could cover their dad without taking his dignity without shaming him. Their faces were turned backwards. They did not see their father's nakedness. And you see Shem and Japheth restoring their father's dignity, even in the midst of his sin. And so the text continues. Noah awoke from the wine and knew that his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be to the Lord, the God of Shem, and, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. In the end of this story, we find Noah blessing his sons Shem and Japheth, for they responded to his sin with grace and restoration. And we see Noah pronouncing a curse. And if you're watching the text carefully, you should see that the curse is not on Ham, but on his son Canaan. It's a tricky little text, but it's a reminder that in the Old Testament there are several places that the idea that the sin of the father comes back to the son, to the third and to the fourth generation, it's replete throughout the Old Testament that the sins of the father typically repeat themselves to their children. Suggests that what Noah sees in his son, he sees in his grandson. And if we were to lean into that further, there'd be a strong warning for dads to be really careful that your sons are watching you. To be really mindful of the fact that your kids will likely become the kind of person you are. That's a strong warning to all parents. But that's not where we're leaning into this morning. Friends, if you take Genesis 9, 18 through 28, what you find is a firm reminder that only God is faithful. 
That even our spiritual forefathers, people we want to hold up, people we want to make statues of and point at and look at, we want to talk about men like Adam and Seth and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we want to make them this perfect image of obedience as if they were awesome. As if they're in and of themselves able to produce a righteousness that we can't. Therefore, we take their stories and go, oh, here's their faithfulness. No, I'm over here. We create a subcategory. And that's the one we fall in. And what we find is that what the Scripture commends them for is not their obedience. What the Scripture commends them for is not their rule following. What the Scripture commends them for is their faith. Over and over again. That they believed That they really, really, really believed that they trusted God. That's what the scripture commends them for. None of these people were perfect. None of them were sufficient. None of them in and of themselves could produce righteousness. For their belief was not in their sufficiency, but in the one who is faithful. It's a reminder, therefore, to us that hope cannot be found in people. Friends, hope can't even be found within ourselves. For we can't even muster the ability to do what we want to do some days. As Romans 7 would testify to us, Paul writing, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. As we started you in on a scenario of everything going well, you fall flat on your face and sin. That's falling into something you hate. And Paul testifies to that in Romans 7. Paul. Paul, another guy we like to put on a pedestal and go, I can never be like that. Paul's going, man, I fall flat on my face and sin. Why do I do it? And the answer is because you're not enough. You're not sufficient in and of yourself. And the only sufficiency, the only fullness, the only completeness you'll find will be in Jesus. Look at what John writes in 1 John 1. John says, if we confess our sins. Now listen to this. If we confess our sins. John is taking for granted you're going to sin. And what do you do with your sins? You confess them. Because here's the answer. He is faithful and just that your forgiveness is not based on you it's based on him that the forgiveness of your sins rests fully on his justice and his faithfulness and his forgiveness read it out he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness So what we're supposed to do with a text like Genesis 9 is see a fallen guy and start to see a glimpse of the gospel that is starting to project forward to go, there's not an answer here. There's not a great hope. What is it going to be? That the Noah was a type of deliverer, but he wasn't the deliverer. He served as a way to show us a means of some saving, but it wasn't the saving. We start to see these perspectives that the gospel is coming. 
that God will send a Messiah. He will send a sufficient one. Look back at the text. Listen to me. He is faithful and just. That's the answer we get. That's the answer Noah needed. That's going to be the answer in a couple of weeks when we lean into the story of Abram. That's going to be Abram's hope. He is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, the story of Noah, just like every other Old Testament story, if we pay attention, is gently pointing us to the cross. It's gently pointing us to the one that God the Father would send in our place. It's gently pointing us to the one who could do what we could not do on our own. To the one who could be faithful. The one who could live faithfully. It points us to the God who would love us so much and so well that he would send his only son to pay the penalty for our sins that we might receive his righteousness. The author of Hebrews gets it. We've pointed at this verse three times. I'll point again. Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an art for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, but this is where I want you to lean in, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah didn't earn a righteousness. He didn't live out a righteousness. He became an heir of righteousness. He would inherit a righteousness, a righteousness greater than his own. He would inherit the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. For that was Noah's great hope. That was Abraham's great hope. That was Isaac's great hope. That was Joseph's great hope. That is our great hope. Friends, as we walk through the Old Testament, if we peel it apart, we get this perspective, be like Noah. We miss the point. For Noah, his whole life points forward to the one who would come to save us from our sins. Here in a couple minutes, we're going to take communion. And as we do, it's that reminder that Jesus paid it all. That's what it is. It's a confession. It is a corporate confession that Jesus paid it all. That will testify to individually and will testify to corporately. And there's a moment, and I'll just challenge you with this now. There's a moment where we're all holding bread that you should peek around and go, Nobody here is like holding up their driver's license. Go, man, that can be, check me out. I'm enough. But we're all holding the bread saying, Jesus, he's enough. This is it. Communion is a corporate testimony that we're to be built up by one another's faith. Noah couldn't do it on his own, and we can't do it either. Let me pray for us, and we'll continue worshiping, headed towards the table. Father, thank you that in your word in your holy word, in the revelation of which you've revealed yourself to us, you didn't give us pictures of men who were great that we should emulate and be like. 
Father, you gave us pictures of men who lived by faith. Who lived as if what you said was true. Father, they believed and they had a rich and a deep view of belief. Father, they trusted you. They had faith in you. Father, Noah believed enough that he built an ark. He believed enough to follow you in obedience. And it wasn't if his own doing. It was a belief in you that pushed him forward. Father, this morning, may we be challenged to a deeper view of belief, to a deeper view of trust, to a deeper faith in you. That you are the only one who can save us. You're the only one who can forgive our sins. And you're the only way we can find righteousness. Father, we look at the story of Noah and are reminded that he is a man that lived by faith. That he's commended for his faith. Father, help us to have a faith so great in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.